This show may contain words that would offend the sensibility of certain habitués of monasteries. It's Monday, October 22nd, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It's what, 14 days until the election? And you know what that means. There are the polls, there are the forecasts, there is the data. But now we're feeling the emotion. With emotion comes nerves. And therefore, it is high time in prime season for bullshit political anecdotes. Bullshit political anecdotes are empowered when a vote is near and hopes are high and so is fear. The reptilian brain overrides sense and we get statements like this on Meet the Press. Anger is the number one issue on both sides. And with Donald Trump, and I will say this, that the Democrats had the anti-Trump venom going for them. They had the super soaker, if you will. The problem is, is now Republican, the problem for Democrats, is that Republicans now have their own super soaker in Brett Kavanaugh. And I will just say, you mentioned 2010 and yep. 2000, uh, or 1994. What was motivating in those elections? The Tea Party in 2010, the contract with America in 1994, and both Democrats suffered under it. This time around, you don't have that full-on hate because you have it on both sides, and I think that's a big difference. Okay, let's break down this bullshit political anecdote. First, 2010, 2014, there was a Democratic incumbent. Republicans gained. Why? Well, usually because the out party does really well in midterms. No. According to this bullshit political anecdote, it's because there was a lot of hate out there, and now there's less hate. Okay, it's not really less hate, but less net hate. I'm going to break it down for you in what might be, if not a super soaker of outlandishness, then a water balloon of stupid. I think the theory goes that a lot of people were hating the Republicans. Usually the out party hates the occupant of the White House. But then the Republicans learned to hate back recent development. And they've countered the hate. And therefore, they've neutralized the hate. And whoever hates more wins. Also, Kavanaugh. Now, there was what looked to be a slight bump or surge in the fortunes of Republicans a couple weeks ago when the Kavanaugh hearing was going on. Correlation? Causation? We don't know. It doesn't matter because it's just a bullshit political anecdote. And I'm not even going to get into the fact that, you know, I think Republicans will do pretty well because this guy they wanted to be on the Supreme Court actually got on the Supreme Court. But in the process, we learned that he might have sexually assaulted a girl in high school. That, that, that's enough to get anyone riled up. Putting that aside, we're talking about bullshit political anecdotes. Now, the bullshit political anecdote Democratic edition, or at least mainstream media, we got MSNBC's Mika Brzezinski. Here she was on Morning Joe today. Throw the national polls out and go race by race. And what you see is a stark reality for the Democratic Party. Barring some dramatic change, control of the Senate is out of reach. And Republicans are fighting very hard to keep the speakership and control of the House. And they just might. That's a bullshit political anecdote. And let me be clear. The part that makes it bullshit isn't that it's wrong or will be proved wrong. Democrats could lose, of course, probably will lose the Senate. But in this case, it is an observation that is subjective, that is not based on real data, and that is being passed off as if it were 
an insight based on something later. In the same episode of Morning Joe, we had a New York Times writer named Elizabeth Diaz on to give us a classic bullshit political anecdote about the Texas senatorial race between Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. These women in Texas, evangelical women, white women, young moms, were telling me when I was out there two weeks ago that they're, at least this group, was ready to give up being longtime Republican supporters, uh, mostly on the single issue of abortion to say, hey, as one of them said, we care as much about babies at the border as we do babies in the womb. And that is such a radical choice for uh, young evangelical women who... It's so radical, I don't believe it. I mean, it could be true that there's going to be a female evangelical wave for Beto O'Rourke. And I am certain that the reporter is not lying. She spoke to specific women who said, I'm an evangelical and I'm going to vote against Ted Cruz. But there is no data to back it up. There's not one scintilla of polling to show that this is a phenomenon, a discernible movement. So what happens is reporter goes to a pretty tight race, interviews a few people. Hey, could be a trend. Can't say it's not a trend. This is the nature of the bullshit political anecdote. It's unproved bordering on unprovable. Bullshit doesn't mean it's true. Bullshit doesn't mean it's false. It means it's indifferent to true or false. It's an anecdote. It's not bullshit because it's false. It's bullshit because it's an anecdote. Mika says she's worried Trump has momentum. That's not showing up in the polls. Evangelicals for Beto. By the way, Beto's a Roman Catholic. He's not evangelical. And Ted Cruz is an evangelical. We don't see any of these trends that the reporter says she saw. That's what makes it bullshit. Ted Cruz, by the way, is leading in every poll that I've seen. Look, Elizabeth Diaz may be right. Mika may be right. Super Soaker Brody may be right. Also, there is something good about Mika and Elizabeth Diaz freaking out on MSNBC, which is that MSNBC viewers are mostly Democrats. And if they freak out, then they'll go to the polls. They're not going to be complacent. That's good. But mostly what we have going on here is anxiety combined with unfalsifiable theory, couple weeks to go before the election. And that means it's all just wind beneath the wings of the bullshit political anecdote on the show today. Speaking of political and bullshit, Jared Kushner's in the news. He was interviewed at length by CNN's Van Jones. It went about as well as an interview could go between a guy who didn't want to ask any hard questions and a guy who didn't want to answer them. But first, are you ready for some NFL football? I was at the game yesterday. It was a Jets game, so technically it wasn't professional football, but I could tell that a cool breeze was blowing across the New Jersey Meadowlands and every other stadium in the league. It is the wind of change. Also, it was just the wind. Every 12 seconds, a stream of garbage would brush across our feet, which was uh, consistent with the product on the field. Mark Leibovich is a veteran political writer who took a break from the swamp to dive into the cesspool, or at least the MRS-infected whirlpool that is the NFL. Now, Mark and I talked a few weeks ago, so the references to the Monday night football game you were here could be dated, but that's fine. The NFL is still America's favorite form of televised entertainment and also one of our very top forms of consternation. NFL Films, Volume 2, Track 2. Cue it. 
to the pantheons of greats, to Unitas and Lombardi and Hallis. Etch a new name, Leibovich. <laughs> For if the gladiators were not chronicled by the bards, would we know their deeds? Okay. That was a little NFL films to mark my interview right now with Mark Leibovich, who has written Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times. Hello, Mark. Thanks for coming in. Mike, my pleasure. Did you just make that up? Were you reading from something? Like <laughs> no, that that I was the poetry, I can, man. I can channel you're the, the voice I, John of Facenda. You're the, I have a little part of me that's you know Facenda-esque. You're, you're the voice of Pod. <laughs> I'm sure that's like already can we taken just, can we rip? Can we rip that as a 30-second uh, commercial that we play on all Slate podcasts? Thank you very I much. we have to. Yes. So I guess this gets to NFL. Have they ever said, you know what, guys? We're laying it on a little thick. We're taking ourselves a little too seriously. You think that's ever been said? Uh, no, I don't <laughs> think so. And you know what? More power to them. I mean, they, melodrama is not their existential issue. <laughs> um, just like laying it on thick is not their – no, look, subtlety – NFL is not a game for subtlety. I mean, there is plenty of subtlety in the game. But from a marketing standpoint, why not make it war? Why not make it good versus evil? Why not make it voice of God? Yeah. Right? So, and do you like, I know you and I are both big fans of the NFL to this day. We're not uh, unconflicted. Not al- unconflicted. Although, we are thinking fans. Mark. Right, we are right. thinking fans. And although we are conflicted in that you're a fan of the Patriots and I am a fan of the Jets. But I'm an odd Jet fan in that I really respect the Patriots and think Belichick's a genius and have absolutely no problem with Tom Brady. Really? Are you sure you're really a Jets fan? I am because... Well, you know Brady. You know him pretty well. I know. And just him. give me a sense we're, of we're best friends. <laughs> no, I uh, give me a sense of he's not. He's not a terrible guy at all. He's yeah. he's a. I mean, he's an amazing story, amazing quarterback. He is one of the things I liked about getting to know him off the field is he's an extremely counterintuitive thinker. He does not like the NFL sort of medical industrial complex, the nutritional industrial complex, the right. idea that. Yeah, you know, very conventional, very conservative medicine has governed football training methods, nutrition methods, you know, medical you know, decisions for many, many years. And he has, in a very, very methodical way, developed his own system. And, and yet, look, he's he's been accused of all kinds of things, quackery. Well, he thinks weird, if he the, drinks enough water, it'll stave off it'll cancer stay, pretty much. Yeah. Well, does he have cancer? That's true. I mean, I, to my knowledge, he does not have cancer and he drinks very well. But like, I'm not a medical doctor, so I can't speak to that. But no, but I, I do, he is, a, he is a free thinker. Bill Belichick is a free thinker. Jim Brown. Satorially. Satori- <laughs> he's, yeah, I don't know. He's a free dresser or something <laughs> like that. But, you know, I'd actually, the one time I had an interaction with Bill Belichick was the book was at the West. White House Correspondents' Dinner after party back when it was still something. Uh-huh. And he was wearing a tux. Yeah. But not a hooded tux. I wonder if you can buy a hoodie. <laughs> well, hooded did he have the sleeves cut off? <laughs> yes. But no. But as a Patriots fan, I respect the Jets too because they're, they've are they been such a fun team to beat over Yeah. You need the Jets. No. But yeah, no, there's a there's a nobility to the Jets. I mean, they're – they, No, in the way that there is to the Mets. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, they're not the Giants. They're not the Yankees. There's a yeah. – the, Did you read the book Collision Low Crossers? By, by Nikki, Nikki Davidoff. Davidoff. Yeah, I love A that. great Jets yeah. insider book. Yeah. Everyone should read it. But they should read Big Game first. Here's the thing that I think a lot of people are not getting about the book, or maybe it's just that I've heard you interviewed in on on sort of non-sports shows, mm-hmm. and they want the big picture, and so Absolutely. do I. And also, I've heard you interviewed on sports shows, and they want the narrow picture. Correct. But here is 
This book needs to be remembered as the greatest accounting of the NFL owners I have ever read. Thank you. That is the most important thing in this book. And the reason, I mean, it's so obvious why, that you owed them nothing. You both were good enough to get the access, so you know the story, and then you didn't know anything, then you didn't owe them anything, so you were able to tell the story. It's the membership, right? It is the great, one of the great untold stories, not just in sports, but I think in entertainment today, these power, these, the power that these 32 billionaires have over our day-to-day sort of entertainment destinies, not to mention the political realities of getting stadiums built and and just sort of like a, a company, an institution that has dominated so many aspects of these of our lives is run by these very unimpressive in large part group of, of inherited sort of misfits in many mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. Not a lot of people that you would want running your corporation. So, yeah, no, I, I thought the owners, if you, and I, I totally agree with you, I think the owners are the story here. Yeah. I think there, I think there's a great miniseries or a great, you know, the, the, the membership. That's what they call themselves. We are the membership. It's sort of a mob-like yeah. name, and it's true. It's the most exclusive billionaire boys club in America. Even Donald Trump couldn't get in. And the and there are a couple women, but it's because their fathers own the They're team. Widows, in the case of the Fords and the Howes family. Yeah. Yes, there was yeah. something. I remember um, I was watching the Patriots-Lions game Sunday night, and they always, as part of, this has to be part of the broadcast deal, but they do the close-up to Robert Kraft and Jonathan Kraft of the mm-hmm. Patriots and talk about how what such great stewards they've been for the league and the success of the Patriots. Of course, Robert is head of the NFL Broadcast Committee, which accounts <laughs> for 60% of the league's revenue. Right. And then they cut so, to <laughs> Mrs. Ford, the owner, the widow of William Ford, the Detroit Lions sort of matriarch. She's in her 90s. She's sitting there. And Chris Collinsworth out of nowhere says, you know, there's something about having a lady in the room. There's something, it just adds some class. I'm like, what is this, like 1921 or something? Like, there's something about having a lady in the room. And everyone just sort of looked right, I mean, no one really gave it like a second thought, but it was a bizarre moment. Yeah, the last time someone said that, he was wearing spats, I believe. Exactly, he should have been. So... If these owners are, some of them inherited their teams. I mean, God bless you. You're a Mara. Your father had some dealings in gambling. And now three generations later, you have this multi-billion dollar enterprise. God bless you. And by the way, I I think the Maras are among the the smarter and uh, classier owners, whatever. And then some of them get their money from extractive industries. And some of them just had their money uh, a long time ago. If we did a complete overhaul of the ownership, and the ownership of the NFL looked more like the ownership of the NBA, which is billionaires, but, you know, tech billionaires, a lot little more, tech, more diverse. Correct. Yes. More people who have to think to earn their money. Correct. Would the NFL change I appreciably? Think it would be for the better. I mean, I do think that there are more nimble and sort of uh, innovative business minds in the NBA. I mean, part of it is there's just more of them. You can, there's more, there's more liberalized ruling about as far as like the groups that they can put together. Yeah. A lot of venture capital, a lot of private equity, which, you know, it is not necessarily, you know, good on its face, but it means that there's a level of rigor, a level of sort of quantitative analysis and a level of, uh, I mean, critical thinking that goes into what an NBA market should be. And, right. and by the way, the NBA is not perfect, but, you know, at the top is Adam Silver. I mean, you, you hear a lot from NFL owners, and I did, uh, from NFL owners and also people at the clubs, like just, I, I would say a, an odd Adam Silver envy. Um, there's an envy towards how he's perceived as a real curiosity about what yeah. he's like. If there was this overhaul in the ownership and maybe the game got with the times, do you think that they 
would embrace things like player protest? Do you think that they would treat the players as their partners? Literally, the uh, Adam Silver always talks about players as their partners. Yeah. Or maybe just the very fact that there are no guaranteed contracts, and that is a huge business huge. advantage for – it's very unfair and cruel, for but it's also NFL. a business advantage. What businessman would give up this that advantage? And then if you don't, if you don't actually have guaranteed contracts, how much of uh, a simpatico relationship right. can you have? I, I still to this day don't believe that that is allowed to exist. I mean I just – I mean if I were like Damara De- Smith, the head of the NFL Players Association – I was going into the next collective bargaining agreement. I would just make that the one issue mm-hmm. because every single person in the NFL just like will wistfully say, "Why don't we have guaranteed contracts?" It's not so much like a sort of like size of contract envy because obviously if there's like 15 players on an NBA team, the pie is going to just be divided that much more, you know, lucratively for a few players. But you you can I mean it just it's it's fundamental, especially given the physical risk over the long term. In the short term, the the length of careers, I mean, it's stunning to me. And look, I guess it is probably good that like if you have a player that you don't want anymore, you can just sort of save $30 million. But it breeds a great deal of resentment. It's fundamentally unfair. And I don't know of any other contracts that work that way. You've interviewed a lot of former quarterbacks who obviously have to have great mental acuity to play the game. You probably have interviewed a lot of senators and representatives of their same age who have to have a lot of mental acuity to do their yeah. job. Do you notice? Not necessarily, a, but yes. Do you notice? Well, I guess <laughs> no, some quarterbacks, right. yes. they uh, said Terry Bradshaw couldn't spell cat if you spotted right. him the C and the A. <laughs> um, do you notice a big difference to the older Elected officials who haven't received those cuts, do they? Uh, uh, those hits seem sharper? Not necessarily. I mean, I will say that, that a lot of the quarterbacks I did talk to were, they're of the generation, they, they were pretty, they played in the 80s and the 90s, and mm-hmm. a lot of them were mobile, like a lot of great mobile quarterbacks played like in, mostly in the 90s. I mean, Brett Favre, Troy Aikman, Warren Moon, Steve uh, Young, Steve Young. Yep. and all of them had multiple concussions. I mean, Steve Young explicitly retired because of concussions. Troy Aikman, I think, has all he had quite a few and he talked pretty pretty candidly about it. Warren Moon told me he had six concussions at least. Um Favre has talked a lot about it. So they were scrambling quarterbacks. Tom Brady Peyton Manning may be a little different because they had really quick releases. They're basically pocket quarterback um, quarterbacks and also just so sharp. And mm-hmm. they played long enough so that their brains could just sort of speed up over the game. And that also coincided with new rules about not being able to breathe on a quarterback, which, you know, there's been a backlash on that like this week. In fact, there was – wasn't there – I don't know if anyone picked this up, but last night on Monday Night Football – uh, or this week on Monday night, because I know that you never know when these things are going to run. This week on Monday Night Football, <laughs> Jason Witten, the new announcer on um, ESPN, like there was some – he was talking about like these quarter – you know, just the, the incredibly um, indulgent rules about how you can't touch a quarterback. And he said, I think it's gone too left wing. Oh. He actually said that, and huh. ESPN sort of glossed over because, of course, they don't do politics anymore, God forbid. But it was an interesting way of looking at it. It's like, okay, there's the sissification of society yeah. over here, and then there's the violence over here. Uh-huh. And like, this Maybe it's is, an over-regulation. Well, yes, which is not a small— Talking point. Yeah, yeah, but that's like the culture war thing that, yeah. that Trump picked up on before Colin Kaepernick came along. So here's my theory. This, yeah. I don't know if there's a question. It's a theory. It's about the future of the game. I think the NFL's like the media— uh, quote-unquote quote, the media, and that they're these huge institutions and they have tons of critics. But will they go away? 
the critics almost balance themselves out. It can't both be the case that Alex Jones is right and The Nation magazine is right in their criticisms. And then if you look at the NFL, you have all these people who say, oh, I'll never watch the game because it's got too sissified. And then you have all these people say, I'll never watch the game because of concussions. So... I think that we tend to look at the criticisms of both these institutions and overinflate them because they're self-canceling. And then the other thing I would say is, what about the long-term prospects? I think things that are institutions go away because of indifference. They Mm -hmm. die because people don't pay attention, like boxing and horse racing. And I don't think they die because people are so impassioned about that. That's true. Passion sells. So, yeah. So, this is why I would say... Intensity sells. Yeah. Story of this tale of the NFL demise might be a little overplayed. Uh, That's what I think. But having said that, I reserve the right to walk away. And here's here's what makes me question that a little bit. I mean, I could run all the demographics on, like, sort of drop in youth participation. Where's the labor pool going to come from? But think about, like, twice in the last couple of years, the Ray Rice situation. And remember when TMZ, that video came out, like, yeah. that morning? Yeah. And for a couple of days, it was like, wow, this is spiraling. This is everywhere. The league has no idea what it's going to do. Calls for Goodell's resignation. I mean, this thing could just, like, kill it. I mean, not, not kill it, but, like, this is serious turmoil. They don't have their heads around this. And, like, for the whole season, that league mm-hmm. was spir- spiraling, but especially for a few days. And then a few years later, you have a president tweeting about the NFL. Like, who could have foreseen that 10 years ago? Who even knew what TMZ was 20 years ago? I mean, it's just like you just don't know. And that's sort of like there is a sense of, you know, Roger Goodell walks around the office like a chandelier is going to fall on his head at any minute. And that's sort of the vibe he comes off. He gives off when he comes out in person. And it's a sense of paranoia that you do have – you just don't know where it's all going to come, you know, come sort of kill the golden goose. But for now, the golden goose is alive and well, and we're talking about it. <laughs> and, and he's favored by three against the yeah, rooster. Yeah, golden yeah. goose is favored by, <laughs> yes, exactly. Big Game is the name of the book, The NFL in Dangerous Times. Mark Leibovich. Thanks a lot, Mark. Mike, great to be with you. And now the spiel. Jared Kushner has been described as opaque, inscrutable, a cipher, and most importantly to his current position in life, the son-in-law of Donald Trump. In an interview with CNN today, he sought to disprove all those things, except the last one, which was so omnipresent, they should have hired Ron Howard as the narrator to remind viewers of it regularly, as with this question. How did you get this job? (laughs) It's because his father-in-law is the president. But Van Jones, the interviewer, didn't wish to emphasize that point. He instead did one of those interviews where you try to establish rapport by being all casual and hope the subject's true nature will shine through. But I don't think it worked because I don't think Jared Kushner's casual. Like, listen to this question. How did, you're a business guy. How did you wind up in this position? Again, his father-in-law is the president. He is related to the president. The word is nepotism, Van, flat-out nepotism. Now, if the question is, how did Jared Kushner get the job of becoming so very involved in prison reform, which was ostensibly the subject of this talk with CNN that came as part of a uh, conference with thought leaders, including Jeff Flake and Nancy Pelosi and a whole bunch of other people starring in scary political ads near you. Well, the answer to how Jared became involved in prison reform is also a form of nepotism. It's that his father went to jail and his father-in-law may be going to jail. So it's really a great fit. 
Van proceeded. Uh, what qualifies you to go and take on these tough issues like all around the world? Like, I think that's one of the big questions people have. Why, why should we have confidence in you to do all this stuff? Well, I think the first thing is that the president trusts me. Wait, that's a qualifier? This president trusting you makes you qualified? He trusted Flynn, he trusted Manafort, he trusted Michael Cohen. In a way, he trusted Stormy Daniels to stay silent. Okay, I could be unfair and make great sport of each of Jared's answers, but I want to give him a fair shot. And I also want to be congratulated for not mocking his vocal fry up to this point. All right, here we go. This was Jared's answer to the, uh, to the last question about why he's qualified. I think he knows that uh, every uh, task he's given me uh, from the start of the campaign through, uh, I've been able to do it quietly. I've been able to do it effectively. I've been able to deliver results. Uh, I don't make a lot of noise. Uh, so noise is sometimes made about me, but I try to keep my head down. And, and I think that he's a businessman and I'm a businessman. And uh, the way I look at it is that it's all about uh, accomplishing the objective. So you have to be very laser focused, not get distracted by it. Laser focused and undistracted. That is the Donald Trump I know. Or actually, and let's be, let's be complimentary to Jared. I think he correctly assesses that that is the Donald Trump as he would like to hear himself being described. And Jared is pretty skilled, it seemed, this is what the interview showed me, that he's skilled at satisfying the constituency of one. And Van Jones was having none of it. Actually, he was having all of it. Here he asked Jared how he navigates the tricky politics of getting prison reform passed. Nobody's been able to figure out how to do something that you figure out how to do. You have Trump and Pelosi on the same bill. Briefly, how did you do that? So in his answer, Kushner says, you know, it helps to have a really good bill. And then he goes on to credit some key backers. Uh, the next thing was I had a lot of help. Uh, I had help from, obviously, Hakeem Jeffries and, and, uh, and Doug Collins, who uh, both were able to put the politics aside and focus on the substance. And there were a lot of Democrats who were saying to uh, Congressman Jeffries, well, you know, you're doing this. This is something that Trump says he's for. How could you be working with him? Or this doesn't go far enough. And, and he said, no, 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 this policy is virtuous. This policy is right. Now, here's the real answer to how Jared Kushner achieved what he has achieved in prison reform. It's that he hasn't achieved anything. This bill got past the House, and now it's sitting before the Senate, and Mitch McConnell seems disinclined to take it up. There's been some talk a couple months ago, maybe during a Laban Duck session, the Senate Republicans will vote for the bill. But let's just be clear, because you do not get this impression at all from a lengthy interview with Van Jones that this bill is actually stalled in the Senate, and that's the politics of it. Also, Jared talking about how he reached out across the aisle, Democrats, Hakeem Jeffries, Nancy Pelosi, naturally inclined to favor prison reform. It's sensible. It's sympathetic to the prisoners. It doesn't rely on easy slogans like, I don't know, lock her up, lock her up. The House passed it. Mitch McConnell's not that into it. Maybe we'll get some progress. But you know what? Let us not schedule the Rose Garden ceremony for getting halfway through our legislative branch. Now, you might ask, well, why did Van Jones not bring this up? Because Van Jones is a prison reform advocate. He's also a journalist, but I think he's much more of an advocate, and he showed his advocacy stripes in this interview. He spent a lot of time polishing Jared's tie tack. You do a rigorous assessment, then you find a partner or two that you can work with well, and then you move forward. Well, Van, that's true. But one of my partners is my father-in-law and nepotism, I imagine nepotism, is a huge benefit there. You know, I think my admitted genius 
can be scaled and replicated across all platforms in every single case where one's father-in-law is the president of the United States. It is really easy if you stick to your business training, your Ivy League education, if you create win-wins and accountability with laser focus, and if your father-in-law is the president. Next van went to Saudi Arabia, and I was eager to hear about that. Kushner deflected, said we need to let the investigation take its course, which is fine. Of course we do. Van asked, does it give you pause that MBS is the one running the investigation? Which is a good question. Credit to him. But then he went with this. I think the, the core of the core of it, like if people, the people who are like mad at Jared Kushner right now, is I think people feel like we got this, this American prince, He's making friends with the Saudi prince, but the Saudi prince, like, killed the dissident, and it's your fault, because if you hadn't been friends with him, he wouldn't have felt like he could get away with it. How do you respond to those kind of critics? I'm not even sure where to start with that. (laughs) How do you respond to the critics, these critics that I've invented, who are issuing what is possibly the stupidest criticism possible in an area where almost every other criticism is actually apt? Mr. President, Mr. President, Van Jones here. You called Stormy Daniels a horse face. Now, how do you respond to critics who love horses and find that you are insulting the fine equine form? You know, a lot of people are saying, but I like horses. How would you respond to that, Mr. President? To me, this interview didn't diminish or elevate Jared Kushner. It's good to hear a really important American policymaker talk ever. For that alone, I'll take it but it didn't elevate Van Jones in my mind. Part of Van Jones's activism is on the prison reform issue. And he clearly sees Kushner as a partner to work with in these efforts. And it clearly gets in the way of his journalism to the extent he even identifies as a journalist. I get and have used in my life the, hey, we're pals, let's just rap. And then maybe the audience will get something out of it. It doesn't work with Jared. In This, which was Jared Kushner's most formal interview to date, I would advise being formal and being pointed. Leslie Stahl did a great job on 60 Minutes with Donald Trump. That's the tone this interview should have taken. I'd have asked Jared Kushner, one, should ex-felons be allowed to vote? Two, if MBS gets away with murder, how do we ever rein him in down the road? Three, should the kidnapping and reported beating, light beating, but beating of the democratically elected prime minister of Lebanon less than a year ago, should that have raised any red flags? Four, if the kidnapping and reported beating of a democratically elected leader of Lebanon had been objected to, do you think this with Khashoggi would have gone down? And then maybe I'd end with, what would you say? If someone watching this said, I'd like an interviewer who has the right, tough, thoughtful questions as his top concern, rather than having the subject like him enough to work together to pass legislation in the future. Cool, dude. Totes cool. And that's it for today's show. I think of just producers Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader as my run-pass option of the edit booth. TJ Raphael is the just senior producer she's been talking to an Irish setter who feared Mitt Romney in the past, but is coming around to voting for him this time as senator from Utah. The gist, your super soaker of insight, your slip and slide of analysis, your ice bucket challenge of intellect. Oomperu de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.